Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hi, welcome in to Saturday Night with Esme. I am sitting in for Esme Murphy. I'm Sloan Martin. I kind of tried to prepare a Troy McClure type open. I don't know if that brings a bell with you, Jonathan. You might know me from such things as doing the news on this very station. Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You might know me from such things as WCCO Radio. Then you just did it for me. I really couldn't get that impression down, so I was like, I'm going to skip it, but you you really helped me out there. All right, and and by the way, you were talking a little bit earlier with Eric Nelson and uh, Steve Thompson about uh, coming in tonight for Esme, and you were hoping for some sort of big intro. Well, I think you should just have someone... Uh, whenever you're filling in on this in this time slot, saying it's Sloan Saturday night here on News Talk eight three zero something like that. You you know what? You just did it for me again. You are the new big voice person, and that should be your next job. Hire Jonathan life. Freelance to be your big voice. I, I, I that's my goal in life to be the the big voice person on many <laughs> different occasions. Well, you can do it. I will put in a good word for you. But again, I'm Sloan Martin. Jonathan Lowe is producing. And Jonathan, uh, before I get into what's going on in the show today, I want to just point out to our audience that we kind of had a little bit of a miscommunication last week. The entire station uh, with my missing headphones. And uh, Jonathan was the one. He saw them here. I It was my fault. I left them here at this desk. I'm not often sitting in this chair. I'm over in the news chair anchoring. Right. And he did the right thing. Didn't walk off with them or anything. He put them, thought they were, you thought they were chats? Was that it? So I was here. I wasn't here in my normal spot that I was, that I usually am on Saturday afternoons. I was here on uh, Sunday uh, filling in for uh, our own hammer, Craig Schreffer, he was in Atlanta for the Super Bowl. And so uh, during that time period, of course, Sunday mornings, it's a sports huddle with Sid Mona or Sid, uh, uh, Dave Mona, Sid Hartman. And uh, last week it was Jeff Diamond because Mike Max was also in Atlanta. So I saw the headphones sitting in the guest spot. And I'm guessing that they got used a little bit later than I thought they were for. So Sid Hartman, as we all know, he comes in, he's the man, he's got all of his stuff, he's got everything to the nines, including his headphones. And I saw these headphones sitting at the spot, and I thought, oh, these are not the normal headphones that are in here. Yeah, these are a gift from my brother-in-law. These are nice, which means that they They are are a hot property in a radio place. That's correct. Not throwing any accusations out here. No, no, no. So I saw them sitting in the guest spot, and I thought, oh, these must have been Sid's headphones. He must have left them here. I'll go ahead and put them in Chad Hartman's mailbox so they can get uh, he can get them to his father. And no one goes in that room. And that's when I started the investigation. <laughs> and I thought these are never out of my backpack. Anyway, it was very funny because our um, our boss Lindsay Peterson sends out a building wide email two minutes after that. Adam Carter, who sits next to me in the newsroom, says, "Oh, I know where those are." And then we had to uh, kind of take the L and yeah. send out a uh, another company-wide email to say, hey, sorry, they've been found. Everything's good, though. 
they were taken care of. I was very worried early well, on. I felt that I had to speak up there because, unfortunately, since I left them in Chad's yeah, you, mailbox. You, uh, you stepped up, and I appreciate it. Chad, Chad was <laughs> taking the heat for it. <laughs> yeah, he said, talk to my lawyer. <laughs> yes, he, 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 inferenced, uh, or he referenced uh, Robert Mueller in an email, <laughs> so you know that it was big time. Um, so I just had to step up and say, whoa, whoa, wait, it's on me. It's my bad. I thought they were SIDS. I put them in Chad's mailbox. And this because, was four company-wide emails, yes. so sorry to everyone else yes, in the building. pretty much. But we're I, on good terms I, still. And, and it's a good <laughs> thing that I put them in Chad's mailbox because if I thought they were SIDS, I might have put them in his office, and his office is usually closed. And that's why I put them no. in Chad's mailbox because I knew that SIDS' office was probably closed. So we're all settled. Very then. lucky. <laughs> All right, let's talk about what we're going to be happening uh, happening on the show today. First, we're going to start things right off. I know that Esme usually talks to Hamlin University law professor David Schultz later on in the show uh, in the 8 o'clock hour. But I figured we're going to talk to him right off the bat because I've heard that there's going to be some big news tomorrow. And by, speaking of that, uh, we're, so we're going to have him on just after the next break and kind of break things down for Senator Amy Klobuchar's major announcement on Boom Island. But I want everyone to know... Time is running out to get your jokes in. We all know what this announcement is going to be. I know it's the worst kept secret, but I am so amused with the jokes. Jason DeRussia tweeted it first uh, from WCCO TV, the morning anchor, where he said, what do you think the announcement's going to be? And the responses were so funny. She's going to start a YouTube channel. She's opening up a restaurant. She's a Packers fan. So if you have any of those, you want to make me laugh, the text line Eight one eight zero seven. I am super amused by them, and I'm going to ask Dave as well if he has any alternative guesses. You never know what's going to happen. I have crazy seen, things can happen. Yeah, I have seen and love the movie Undercover Brother, which is basically based on something like this: a, a, a character in this movie. If you haven't seen Undercover Brother, where have you been? It's oh, I'm raising my hand over here, but I'll oh take your word gosh. for it. Okay, so let's just say that there was an announcement for a president. Uh, campaign coming up, and the person that was supposed to announce it announces something else, and that just creates this whole comedy, comedic uh, spoof yes. of uh, spy movies. It's if you've never seen Undercover Brother, uh, starting starring Eddie Griffin, Kansas City's own, um, I would highly, highly recommend it. It is hilarious. I mean, I would just die laughing if she just gathered everyone and was like, "All right, everyone." Uh, I'm not going to be running, but uh, enjoy your hot chocolate. Enjoy this view. And uh, thanks for coming out. I, just, <laughs> I mean, we know that's not going to be it. I just am having fun with this. In, in, the, in the midst of two of the worst weather weeks we've had in a while, yeah. that would not be that – would that, no, uh, they would probably toss her into the <laughs> Mississippi. You're probably right about that. All right. We are going to take a pause. And then, like I said, we are coming back with uh, Dave Schultz from Hamlin University. Later on in the show, I'm going to have a guest for Black History Month to talk about uh, a certain era in Minnesota history that maybe doesn't get talked about a whole lot that maybe we see the effects of still today. I'm going to be talking to a writer from The Atlantic about how what the trends we're seeing with kids playing football and how that's different via socioeconomic status, via race. We've heard a lot about fewer and fewer kids signing up for youth football, for high school football, but that is not the case for every place in the country, every family in the country. I'll also be talking about Generation X, that uh, small generation squeezed in the middle of 
millennials and baby boomers. Uh, I think we'll have some fun with that. And then also about efforts in Minnesota to get the Equal Rights Amendment passed. So make sure you stick around. We'll be here until 9 o'clock after that. Jill on Money with CBS Business Analyst Jill Schlesinger. So we'll be right back with more talk on Klobuchar. Saturday night with Esme is Saturday night with Sloan for tonight. Sloan Martin along with you. Normally working in the WCCO newsroom, now at the host chair here in the studio. My first guest is Hamlin University law professor Dave Schultz. Thanks for joining. I know I'm the backup, but I think we're still going to have a good chat because there's a pretty big thing to talk about before tomorrow. Yes, there is. We're looking at, unless she completely surprises us, Amy Klobuchar will declare she's running for president. Now, I wanted to play actually a quick clip from Governor Tim Walls because I was saying in the first segment, Dave, that I'm just having so much fun with people with all their fake guesses about what she could be announcing because it's just the Bourse kept secret. She's continued to be coy about it, but even Governor Walls was kind of getting in on it. She asked me to come. I, I hope it's not her hot dish recipe or something she's going <laughs> to unveil on the afternoon. So stuff like that. I'm just loving the joke so far. But as you said, Dave, we're looking at her announcing a run for president. First, just let me get your general reaction to um, did you see this coming and what do you think about this next step? Well, first off, yes, I did see it coming because clearly now going into her third term as a U.S. senator, um, she has earned a lot of respect, I think, from a lot of Democrats and many people across the country, whether it's through um, her, her comments at the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and so forth. And she's an ambitious person. And at some point, she has to decide, you know, what can she really accomplish in the Senate, especially when she's, what, she's still in the minority, um, and which means and people in the minority – and I'm not faulting her, um, don't have a lot of influence in the world. So, so I'm not surprised that she's doing it. She's sort of been hinting at it for a while. And so this, this unlike, unless she surprises us tomorrow, um, no big surprise in terms of it. Now, in terms of thinking about it, um, of course, the obstacles are huge, you know, that, that anybody who runs for president, the odds are against them. And I think she faces some incredible obstacles um, also in terms of running for president of the United States. Well, I'll go to that next. Do you think that in, things are so early right now and things can change a lot over the next several months? Politico is reporting that she is going to be in Iowa sometime later this month. How can she win in this crowded field? Do you think here early on that there is uh, some momentum for her? Well, first off, we have to think in terms of where she is right now. The most recent Washington Post ABC polls among Democrats has her polling at about 2%. She's coming in near the rear of the pack. A lot of it is is name recognition at this point. And, and one of the challenges she faces, and this is something that I think Walter Mondale, Hubert Humphrey, Tim Pawlenty, Michelle Bachman have all faced, is for people on the coasts, you know, Minnesota's flyover zone. You know, we're not a, we're not the coast. We're not the major, you know, major media markets: New York, Boston, L.A. So her challenge is is getting her name out there, getting name recognition among Democrats. And I think that's going to be her first challenge. And I think her second challenge, of course, is going to be just the incredible amount of money she has to raise. I did. Um, um, the other night on WCCO television and pointed out that that going look, looking at Hillary Clinton, looking at Donald Trump three years ago, we're looking at probably Amy Klobuchar, if she makes it all the way to the end, having to raise almost a million dollars a day oh, every wow. day between now and the election. I mean, that's daunting for anybody. 
that's a, a huge part of it for sure. But I wanted to go back to that first challenge you brought up because I would think that she would think that being from the Midwest would maybe be more appealing to voters, that she's not from these quote-unquote elitist states that uh, some people that she might be trying to attract, maybe those more reticent Trump voters at this point trying to get a hold of them. Can being from Minnesota be an advantage for her in this race to try and make sure that Trump doesn't get elected again? I think that's clearly going to be part of her narrative. Now, clearly, all the Democrats are going to be running on the banner that they're against, against Trump, and so is, so is Klobuchar. So part of her challenge, of course, is distinguishing herself from, you know, who knows, I'm already beyond fingers and toes at this point, or at least toes of the number of Democrats who want to run. So she has to figure out a way of saying not only is she against Trump, but why, and what she stands for. And part of, I think, what she needs to do is talk about her narrative. Her narrative is, of course, what? She has done exceedingly well in greater Minnesota, in rural Minnesota, winning many counties and areas where there are Trump supporters. But also keep in mind that two, well, I want to say two years ago, three years ago, Donald Trump um, won the upper Midwest, Minnesota being the exception. And maybe she can make the argument, as you said here, of coming from the Midwest. You know, she can appeal to a type of voter um, that that doesn't necessarily always go for for Democrats and, and, and bring some of those voters home. So that's going to be part of what she has to tell as her story in terms of, let's say, called the electability story. She's electable. How does Klobuchar fit into not just the field right now, but the Democratic Party overall? Because there's this kind of growing or at least more vocal part of the party that is voicing a lot more, I guess, some progressive thoughts. We saw uh, Elizabeth Warren make it official for her run for president today. And maybe that's kind of gaining steam, uh, you know, having these opinions more along the lines of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as opposed to the more centrist trying to attract some of those um, those Trump voters and flip them back over. Where does she stand in terms of the Democratic Party right now and in the field? And that really, I think, is the hundred thousand dollar question because not not in a disparaging way, she's closer to a Hillary Clinton mold and a little bit more more centrist, you know, than the rest of the Democratic Party. Which you're correct, there is a part of the party, you know, it's the Elizabeth Warren, it's the Kamala Harris, it's the Bernie Sanders direction. And I think the the real real sort of challenge, I'm not sure if I want to go to the point of saying a war, but split in the Democratic Party is where is the soul of the Democratic Party right now? And what she's going to be testing at this point are waters that suggest that if she were to do very well, the party is more towards the center. But you're clearly correct that right now the buzz um, in terms of where the party is seems to be moving towards the left. It seems to be moving towards issues in terms of what you know, um, Medicare for all, single or single payer, um, more towards free college tuition. It seems to be um, moving um, again far more to the left. And what she's going to have to do is convince the party, um, or two things, convince the party that she, that the party is more electable moving towards the center. And D, she's going to have to figure out a way of getting those centrist voters to show up, but at the same time convincing the more progressive wing of the party um, to come over to her. Because at the end of the day, any Democrat who's going to win in 2020 has to knit together a coalition of what I, of, of young people, people of color, um, the urban liberals, and as we saw in 2018, 
it is what suburban women i mean right now the the single most important and powerful group of people in the united states are those suburban women and one would think that perhaps amy klobuchar can appeal to them so she's got to figure out how to bring all these people together into her coalition yeah she's always excelled at being able to attract uh, to be popular with so many different kinds of people, winning, um, you know, winning how handily she has in the last couple elections, the kind of widespread support that she has. And it makes me think of, you know, she hasn't drawn the ire of the president, uh, which could either mean that she, you know, hasn't done enough to get his attention. But I think there's a lot of these kinds of voters, a lot of Democratic voters who maybe take that as a badge of honor that you have kind of gotten under this man who we don't like or respect skin. And I wonder how that might uh, that might work out, too, in terms of um Trump voters trying to flip them back over, but uh, that she hasn't really gotten his attention at this point. Now, again, what's what's going to be interesting to think here is is that the skills that have made her very successful in Minnesota, and I'm going to say other Minnesota politicians again, um, you know, you know, in general, I'm going to say we're a little bit more subdued in this state. You know, we're not flamboyant. We're not. I'm going to kind of call it sort of rock starish in that way. Uh, and that does people really well here. And one of the difficulties I think we've seen in the past is that the skill sets and sort of personas that do well in Minnesota haven't done well to go on at the national stage. And this is going to be, I think, a challenge for her. And again, I'm not faulting her here, but there just may be a, a disconnect. And so we're going to see between what we do, what we like in Minnesota nationwide. So her challenge is now is to translate um, the persona that, is very well liked, is very successful in Minnesota, and can she get that to work on the national stage? Hamlin University law professor Dave Schultz joining us here on WCCO. I, I want to transition into the reports this week because it's kind of been an attack on that persona that you were just talking about. And I'm referring to these uh, two Huff, Huffington Post articles and then another one from BuzzFeed to have come out uh, just at the end of the week here about uh, her alleged mistreatment of staff. And both of these outlets have talked to former staffers about different outbursts and uh, things that maybe cross a line professionally, according to these people who uh, are quoted in these articles. And before I ask you about that, I want to play this clip from Senator Tina Smith. Corey Heppelin here on WCCO asked her uh, about these reports. I can only speak to what I know about Senator Klobuchar. She and I have been friends for over 20 years. She came, Amy and John came to the wedding of both of Archie's and mm-hmm. my sons, uh, Sam and Mason. We we jokingly tell our colleagues back in Washington that we spent New Year's Eve together and we chose to spend New Year's Eve together. Yeah. It wasn't just because there was an event. So she's been a friend and ally and, and confidant and mentor of mine for many years. And she is smart. She is tough-minded. She is strong. And she cares a lot about her staff and she cares a lot about the people of Minnesota. And that's what I know about yeah. her. Now, Dave, there's definitely a debate to be had about whether these kinds of words, whether these kinds of feelings would be attributed to a male lawmaker and how we treat women who are assertive and ambitious. Uh, But I do want to ask you about these reports from a political standpoint. I'm sure she's going to be asked about them tomorrow during uh, her announcement if uh, media is able to get some time with her. What, uh, first of all, does this hurt the persona that she has, you know, spent her entire career putting together? And what should her response be? Well, clearly it hurts, and it already at this point forces her to be on the defensive in terms of having to now to address these. 
and she's going to have to address them at some point. I mean, she just can't ignore them, huh? But I don't know quite what her answer is going to be at this point. It has to be something perhaps about setting a high standard. Um, it has to be in terms of um, maybe discounting them. I'm not sure what it's going to be. But I do want to still come back to your sexism statement here because yeah. I think you're absolutely correct here that that we rarely see stories in the news about, let's say, um, males, you know, you know, disparaging their staff, you know, and I mean, even Donald Trump, you know, I mean, we, the stories in the news, you know, don't, don't probably go far enough in terms of his management style. So I think Klobuchar is in part a victim of, of sort of sexism. But in general, I think this is a question I want to pose here is that two years or three years ago when Clinton ran, I used to argue and say that about 30% of the American public will never vote for a woman for president. Everybody thought I was nuts, um, thinking that was too high. I actually think it was too low. I still think it's at least 30%. And I think Klobuchar, like any of the women running for office, is going to face this huge double standard of which I think there's also what? Probably about a third of the American public that's still not going to consider her or any woman seriously for president and are going to expect what? Um, what People like Amy Klobuchar to do what? It's supposed to be nice, smile, and bake cookies. And be likable and yes. be agreeable and approachable and... Sometimes you can't do that when you're in that level of power. Yes, sometimes you actually have to make tough decisions, and this is what she's going to have to be able to sort of navigate here, is to sort of navigate the sexism, navigate... Um, and what may be some legitimate criticism, I don't know, versus saying that that this is not. And so this is going to be her challenge. I think her other challenge tomorrow is the fact that, as you pointed out, Elizabeth Warren declared today. So she has to deal with competing um, stories of somebody else declaring and these stories from BuzzFeed and Huffington Post. Uh, these, these are tough challenges for her in getting her initial announcement out. One more question, Dave, before we have to go to break. We've uh, You just mentioned it about the number of women running in this field and what you had said about them uh, being elected is definitely discouraging. But I think that especially with this whole wave of activism we've seen since the election of Donald Trump, for a lot of people, it's extremely encouraging and exciting to see this many women running. So I'm wondering your take about this. And this is, uh, you know, historic. This is historic, and what I think is really fascinating with this is if you were to sort of talk to people about a year and a half ago, people would have said, oh, there's no way that, a, that the Democrats can nominate a woman for president again um, after what happened to Hillary Clinton. And I'm not hearing that as much as I did before. Hmm. Maybe Hillary Clinton's loss was, was, was clearly part because she was a woman, maybe also be part of who she was. But I'm certainly not hearing people say, for example, that Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, um, um, Elizabeth Warren and so forth. Um, there's, I'm not hearing people say, at least most people say, there's too many women, run, women running for president. Instead, um, I think this is an encouraging sign that women now are seriously competing for president of the United States and that perhaps um, one of them will get the nomination. All right, Doc. Uh, David Schultz, he is a law professor at Hamlin University. Thank you so much for joining us and the insight as usual. Uh, coming up next here on WCCO, we're going to be having a Minnesota Black History Month conversation, specifically about uh, the 19th century and how important that time period was for the state. Maybe some things you don't know. Maybe it's not always taught in schools, but it's good to go over here during Black History Month. Thanks so much for joining us here on WCCO. We'll be right back back. 
Saturday Night with Esme continues. I'm Sloan Martin filling in. It is Black History Month, and as I've noticed is noted on my show sheet from producer David Josephson, I apparently pitched this next guest by writing that I'm a huge history nerd in capital letters. Well, you know, I didn't grow up in this state, but I do like learning about the place that I love, and that is a true statement. Dr. Bill Green is a professor at Augsburg University and the vice president of the Minnesota Historical Society. He's the author of three books that focus primarily on race during Minnesota's early statehood in the Reconstruction era. His most recent book is called The Children of Lincoln, White Paternalism and the Limits of Black Opportunity in Minnesota, 1860 to 1876. In advance of his talk Tuesday at the Minnesota History Center about reconstruction in Minnesota, I welcome in Dr. Green. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I want to focus on this era since it is something that you have written and researched extensively about. Minnesota was granted statehood in 1858, just before the Civil War. Were those early inhabitants influential in the abolition movement at all? Uh, a number of the founders of the uh, of the of the new state uh, were indeed. Uh, they they kind of represented. Um, the sensibility of New Englanders and people from upstate New York who came from a traditional a tradition of reform. Um, many people from that region embraced uh, the end of slavery as well as women's suffrage and universal education. And when uh, uh, they began to settle in Minnesota, um, there was uh, the hope at least that Minnesota would become sort of a New England in the West. Uh, and by that, I mean uh, a place that shared some of the same ideals of the of the progressive thinkers or the uh, reformers from the East Coast. Um, but uh, you know that 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 vision had to be basically uh, renegotiated with a number of other people who came to Minnesota, who weren't as uh, progressive in that regard. They wanted to end slavery, but they weren't necessarily certain that they wanted to support uh, a body of government that would um, uh, give blacks uh, political equality. And so that becomes very much uh, the debate for the next several years. In The Children of Lincoln, you write that you know, these enlightened northerners, and I think you're around Gen Z a lot more than I am. I think those kids uh, would call them woke those woke northerners uh i guess they kind of i guess they kind of changed their tune a little bit you talked uh, just previously about maybe feeling some discomfort with um really equality even though they did support ending slavery kind of how did that change um as we get into reconstruction uh, here in minnesota well um during the period of reconstruction across the nation um, you know, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were ratified, the 13th ending slavery, the 14th establishing citizenship rights to the, the newly enfranchised slaves, uh, as well as giving them uh, due process, securing due process rights for them, and the 15th Amendment establishing voting rights. Those, those amendments were ratified by the 1870s, and then almost uh, overnight, once having ratified those those amendments, the uh, party of Lincoln basically abandons the African American for it is during that time, which is part of Reconstruction. You begin to see the resurgence of white supremacy, and what my book does is try to examine 
what did the children of Lincoln, those follow, those who followed Abraham Lincoln, what did they do during that same time? Did they follow the lead of of um, their brethren from the rest of the of the country, or did they chart a different course? And what I found was that uh, many of those uh, children, so-called children, uh, basically felt like you know they had done their part in establishing those rights, uh, and then they began to uh, go on to other interests. Some of them actually began to get rather uh, hostile to civil rights because they saw that as uh, a ploy on the part of the Republican Party, which they had come to criticize. Um, they saw that, they saw civil rights as a ploy of the party uh, to, to distract people from the corruption that was infesting the party. Uh, if we can uh, get people thinking about um, what we did uh, that was noble in, in the Civil War, we can get them to ignore um, the, the problems that, that, that befall the nation now. That, in, this, in essence, is what people were feeling during the period of Reconstruction. And so I found that some of the, some of the children in Minnesota were, getting, were becoming much more cynical about uh, uh, civil rights because they were becoming more cynical with the Republican Party that they had belonged to. Dr. Bill Green, a professor at Augsburg University, an author and vice president of the Minnesota Historical Society, joining me here on WCCO to talk a little bit about Minnesota Black history during Black History Month. Dr. Green, was there ever a sense of optimism from freed uh, slaves here in Minnesota to, to, to make this their home? Oh, yes. Uh, I, Minnesota had a reputation of being... Uh, exceptional, even uh, in the wake of the Civil War. Um, it had a reputation for being a place where uh, blacks could live in dignity. This was the perception. Interestingly enough, though, during that time, there were very few blacks living in Minnesota. Um, but the reputation comes from an effort on the part of political leaders to pass a referendum that would establish political equality for African Americans. And that happened. Uh, before it happened in other states, and it happened before the 15th Amendment was enacted. So black suffrage in Minnesota predated the 15th Amendment. That underscores um, the sense that Minnesota was progressive. Uh, also, African Americans had um, a little bit more access to the party leaders, and that, that means the, 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 the governmental leaders of the state. Um, in a way that other people of color in other states did not have. Um, and you don't see the same kind of, at least his, the history does not show the same kind of anti-black um, uh, actions that we see in other parts of the country, particularly in the South. So in the absence of lynchings, in the absence of, 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 of Klan activity running rampant, in the absence of... of um, hard-nosed, racialized uh, politics. Uh, there was the sense that, well, we are at least not the South. We are at least not even New York or Illinois, where you had those kinds of racialized politics being played out. Um, and that conveyed a sense of, of, um, of, of Minnesota as a promised land. Um, also, a lot of black leaders had an investment in presenting Minnesota as a um, 
as a uh, a place of, of a forward thinking place. Hmm. Um, in uh, it, by the end of the century, you actually see some of the greatest modern civil rights leaders in the black community: um, Du Bois, W. E. B. Du Bois, Ida B. Wells, uh, even Booker T. Washington, and others coming to St. Paul to discuss an agenda for a modern civil rights uh, movement. And um, you know that's that was that was the kind of thing that gave Minnesota a sense of being progressive. On the other hand, on the other hand, there was not a lot of press on the fact that there a lot of coverage, I should say, on the fact that there is a lot of discrimination here. Just as you don't see a proliferation of violent action against black people, you do see as part of the custom, social custom, um, political equality granted to African Americans, a very small population, um, but that blacks would not be admitted into restaurants and hotels and places like that where they would socialize with white people. Dr. Green, to change gears, maybe this is something that you come across as a history professor. I think there are some people that struggle to see how much history impacts people's lives today, particularly for African Americans. They say slavery's over, Jim Crow's over. In what ways, and I know this is a big topic to throw at you, but in, in what ways do we really see these tangible effects from how Minnesota navigated this post-Civil War era that we've been talking about and kind of how it still exists in this uh, current day, how significant that time period was? Well, I, I think that what we can learn from that time period, if that's what you're asking, is that um, that, that high-minded actions – you know, noble actions, once we become complacent to that, we begin to allow those actions to lose its integrity, to begin to fall apart. Um, when we become self, self-righteous in what we did in the past, that seems to be the first step to the purpose and meaning of those noble actions beginning to dissipate, beginning to, to, to fall apart. I think that what we see happening today um, you know, America felt pretty pretty good about the idea of electing a black man to the presidency, you know, Barack Obama, and doing it twice. And a lot of people felt comfortable about that, felt, felt, uh, felt like they had indeed participated in bringing the nation forward on the issue of race relations. And then in, 19, in 2016, you see the election of, of Donald Trump. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things where I think that once we become complacent to our good deeds, we then begin to think we can focus on other things or, or that the work is done. And, and the fact of the matter is social justice is never done. The work of mm-hmm. social justice is never done. Um, I'm hoping that folks take from history uh, not just, you know, knowledge of the past, which is itself rather, rather compelling and important to have, but also a way of looking at ourselves, using it as a way of monitoring and measuring um, what kind of citizens we are today, what kinds of decisions we make um, as, we, as, we, as we go forward, what kinds of policies and what kinds of leaders we want to choose. Um, I think history can provide us with a, a context in which we can have wisdom behind the choices we make for today, for today's society. 
Black History Month, we see it celebrated. We see brands and athletes putting on on a bigger platform. I believe Nike even has a shoe to commemorate the month. And obviously, there's there's just so many huge names. You've mentioned a couple, but, you know, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King Jr., the ones that you really hit in those history books. But there's so much more. The volume is so big. And I'm wondering what you think about Black history kind of being othered from American history. I came across this tweet at the beginning of the month, if you know of uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. She's a New York Times Magazine writer, covers race and school segregation, and she tweeted, Happy Black History Month, a.k.a. Actual American History Month. And I'm wondering from your perspective, should more be done, especially for really early education, to integrate the two more, to learn more than beyond these these major names who made immense contributions and should be learned about, but to expand that more, to expand it from a month and really see the value, no matter what the class demographics are, and really delving into this kind of history and seeing the effects now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I I think that... Um... You know, publishers can do more. I'm I'm really pleased with my publisher, but I think that other publishers could do more to to get uh, diverse stories out. Um, universities can invest in that type of curriculum. Uh, uh, grade schools and you know K-12 education could do more to diversify its curriculum. Um, there's there's a lot of lot of work to be done to be telling to tell those stories, and I think that the when we don't tell those stories, then it's easy to dismiss the importance of those stories. Um, so if we're really talking about getting a full picture of what it is to be an American, a full picture of our history, um, you know, the, the, the story of African Americans and the story of women and the story of Native Americans and, and Asian Americans and so on, all of that kind of participates in what America really is. Um, it, it is not as confined as it, has, as it has been uh, when we were growing up, at least. Dr. Bill Green, professor at Augsburg University, author, vice president of the Minnesota Historical Society, his most recent book, The Children of Lincoln, White Paternalism and the Limits of Black Opportunity in Minnesota, 1860 to 1876. You're speaking at the Minnesota History Center on Tuesday about reconstruction in Minnesota. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation. All right, we're going to step aside for a quick break here on WCCL. More coming up on Saturday Night with Esme. Sloan Martin along with you here on WCCO filling in for Esme Murphy. We have CBS uh, news coming up at the top of the hour. But before we get there, Jonathan, I want to hear your takes on the Grammys, which is tomorrow. I'm not a huge uh award show person i kind of like to check them out but like sitting down and watching them you won't really find me doing that this is my biggest take i am rooting for uh everything a star is born i just i'm a big fan (laughs) i loved lady gaga's performance and the music in it it was a good one but i'm also rooting for like can we get some more and this is not my most preferred kind of music. I'm one of those, you know, the cliched listen to everything. But I want to see more respect for like rap and hip hop. 
They've just been left out of like the album of the year and the record of the year so many times. Don't get me started about what's happened to Beyonce in the past. But I think it's about time. I think about Kendrick Lamar. I think about This Is America, which was a really compelling choice. So that's – I wonder if that will happen this year. Like let's kind of get some proper recognition here. It's been interesting to see raps and hip-hop's evolution and – I'll tell you right now, I am not the biggest uh, devotee to hip-hop. Yeah, I, me too. I, I like hip-hop. I, I like respect it, qu- it. A, a, quite a bit. But I know people in my own circle of people that I've met that are much more devoted to that genre of music. But it's still interesting to see how it's grown over the decades. And it's it's sort of the same with any other specific genre of music. Since they have their own categories, since they have best rap song, best rap performance, best rap album, I don't know how much you're going to get that into the general population over pop, over rock, over country. Um, it's it's still taking a while to get there. I also think it has to do with kind of how the 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 style of rap has changed over, especially over the it last. It definitely 10 sounds to different years. than from like the 80s and 90s or oh, even 15 years ago. And I get it, things evolve and things change, and now it's more about instead of doing samples and having catchy little tunes in the background while people are rapping over them, it's more about the the beats and the the sort of the timing of everything and it more of personal messages rather than uh, political messages, well, like a public enemy or or a, a Grandmaster Flash. Oh yeah, but it's 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 interesting how it's changed and become different and. I don't know if the Academy recognizes it or the Academy just says, okay, this is kind of foreign to me and yeah. just doesn't go, doesn't like to talk about it. That's what happened with Beyonce's Lemonade, which I think a lot of people would seriously say is one of the best albums of the 21st century. Yep. Um, a lot of people would consider that. I don't think that's being too hyperbolic, but it was like it just didn't fit neatly into any kind of category. So it right. just kind of eventually gets overlooked. And Adele had a great... Uh, speech if you remember she was like this should be going to you and you're my hero and um that was uh definitely a like big moment in grammy's history not again that i know that many off the top of my head but that is certainly a huge one and i have to agree with you i don't sit down and watch the awards as i did at one point in time but I don't anymore. It just doesn't appeal to me. I'll catch the clips on Twitter if yeah, like anything weird I'll, I'll happens. Catch, I'll catch the awards. Uh, you know, maybe who won what. But like the was it a couple weeks ago the SAG Awards? I didn't sit down and watch them, and we vote on them. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it's just I, I I watch other things. I'm a sports dork. I watch other programming. That's what I do. You know, we're going to be having a talk about generations coming up after CBS News, but it made me laugh because I was thinking to myself, like, I catch up on things via, like, short videos, GIFs, and that's, uh, it works for me when it comes to award shows like this. But I look at some of these names, Jonathan, and I'm not even trying to be that person who's like, I don't even know about pop culture but I don't know a lot of these people. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm already there. I'm, I'm not terribly old, but I'm already there. Yeah, you know, and it's like I uh, try to make uh, know what's going on. 
We're going to go to CBS News. We'll have a break and have that generation topic after this. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.